0: Hello and welcome to episode 52 of the Classic Lenses podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm hosting this podcast from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. Joining me today is Carl Havens in Gainesville, Florida. Hello Carl. Good morning Simon. And unfortunately, Johnny Sisson cannot be with us this week, which is uh, pretty much the first time that's happened. but we do have a special guest now before i go on to talk about this week's show i've got a bit of housekeeping to do uh, because at the start of each episode if we had a a guest on the previous episode i usually thank that person for being on and i didn't do that um for when we had brian nagar uh, with us for week 49 uh, where we talked about his photography and we also spent a lot of time talking about 100 millimeter lenses so here's a, a belated thank you for being with us, Brian. And, uh, and if you've not listened to that show, then I urge you to take a listen. Um, now, I, t- I know it sounds astonishing that some people may not have actually heard uh, episode 49, but it's certainly going to be the case because last week we've had a... Uh, quite an influx of uh, new listeners to us um, because the show that we did last week with Bob Rotoloni and Mike Eckman um, has gone down very, very well. Um, a lot of people, uh, not a, new, a lot of new listeners, have been with us for for that episode. So uh, um, if you're still with us, then uh, it's well worth going back through some of the uh, older shows. Uh, but I'd skip episode one. <laughs> Whatever you do, skip episode one. <laughs> um, so, uh, which which in itself brings me uh, nicely to say, uh, nicely to... Um I'm, mess, I'm messing my segue up all, already, though. But uh, yeah, I just also want to say thank you uh, to Bob Rotoloni and Mike Eckman for being with us last week uh, because that was a it was a really enjoyable show for um, you know for everybody that was uh, involved. I think, and uh, it's it's also quite. Interesting that it's been uh, quite—it's been critically acclaimed. That show. Um, Some people have said it's the best one that that we've done, and it just happens to be the show that Carl wasn't on it. Uh, Johnny left halfway through, and I hardly spoke. (laughs) So um, it's—it was definitely an episode for uh, um, for Mike Eppman's interviewing skills and uh, and Bob um, Bob Rotoloni's stories. Um, It was uh, it was a great listen. So um, thank you guys for uh, for being with us, and I also glad to say that um, I know that Mike and Bob are, are willing to come back um, and do a round two and I think uh, this could be something that could go on for a long time. But, uh, it, it's certainly the case that Bob has got a lot of stories and a lot of anecdotes and, um, and a huge amount of knowledge and, uh, and the way he tells, us, tells his, his stories is, is really interesting, it's really engaging so uh, yeah, at some point they will be back. So that brings us on to this week's show and, um, and it is actually, uh, what is it? Uh, a postponement of what, yeah, uh, <laughs> of what should have been episode 50, um, because, uh, we have somebody on the show who, um, and actually this, how this came about was because, uh, of a super friend of the show, Cheyenne Morrison, who, um, kept badgering me to, uh, to get a certain person on on the on the podcast, and uh, and he suggested I reached out to one of the major players in cinematography, and uh, and with that, I'm delighted to say uh, that we have with us today um, Matthew Duclos of Duclos Lenses in California. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Um, now, as I've hinted, there uh, we've had lots and lots of uh, people in the past. Um, asking us to do something on cine lenses and video you know, video and cinematography in general. And that's a subject that uh, certainly Carl and I have very little uh, uh, understanding of. And uh, I think uh, Johnny's got a bit more, uh, but we have with us an expert uh, and that is my, Matthew Duclos. And, um, and I think that it'll be good to hear a little bit more about you, uh, Matthew, and perhaps um, you could uh, tell us a bit about your photographic life how you got to be where, where you are and uh, where you're going and uh, things like that
1: sure um so i started i would say that my photography hobby started uh as a result of my father he uh he was a lens technician he worked for a company called New in new hampshire for many years uh, and that was the introduction to him for uh for exotic lenses and he passed that on to me uh i would say maybe i don't know the late 90s uh was when i started taking it up uh my father would let me just borrow his canon uh, i imagine most people started with the uh, the ae1 it's just such a a simple standard camera but uh, that was probably my first hobbyist camera and uh it just snowballed as many photography classes as I could. In fact, I think I failed one photography class in high school. Um, and uh, it just snowballed from there. I never stopped. And then once I was a little bit older, I started working with my father, uh, working on repairing lenses, servicing lenses, and just got more and more curious, uh, which is why your guys' Facebook group and the podcast is so interesting to me because it's all about exploring different lenses. So... Uh these days most of my photography uh is strictly hobbyist. I I dabbled in full time career photography for a couple years, um back in the mid two thousands. Uh or not two thousands, like twenty twelve, twenty thirteen, something like that. And uh hung that hat up so that I could stick to fixing lenses and these days it's strictly hobby. I, I go out and shoot anytime I can, and if I don't have time to go out and shoot, most of my uh, personal photography is of my two young girls. So that keeps me pretty busy.
0: Now, now you are um, your current your current role is uh, if, if I got this right, it's the Chief Operating Officer of uh, Duclos Lentis. Is that is that correct?
1: Uh, on paper, yeah, that's, <laughs> our, that's the official title. Um, the the whole biz it's a family business through and through. My father uh, and I started the company. My sister joined us a couple years in when we started getting really busy. Uh, my cousin works there. It's you know we, me, my father, and my sister are the uh, the the core of the business. So yes, on paper my title is COO, but uh, we don't really we don't really adhere to any strict corporate policies like that.
0: So um, I think it'll be. I mean, I've I've been on your website and I've been quite quite shocked at the range of services and things that you actually do. I, I you know, perhaps you might want to. I know you've you've. you've more interested in just chatting general photography rather than, uh, than, than, than pushing your company. So, so to speak. But I think, yeah. um, what you actually do at, uh, do close lenses is, is very, very interesting. You know, there's a whole range of services as well as selling some very, very expensive lenses. Um, I'm not saying your lenses are overpriced. It's case of that's just, they are expensive <laughs> lenses.
1: They're not my lenses. I,
0: no, no, so, but so, uh, so
1: their lenses may be overpriced.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so perhaps you could uh, tell us a bit more about your, your company and uh, the, the services and the, 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 the that it does. Uh,
1: sure. So, we primarily service cinema lenses, uh, meaning lenses that were designed and built for motion picture. Uh, the core of our business is service, so if a uh, production, uh say someone drops a lens on set and they need it fixed, they would bring it to us. Um, I I think from a a consumer perspective, if you drop a Canon L-series lens, you're most likely going to bring it to Canon. Uh, But most of the manufacturers for these high-end cine lenses don't. they either don't have a presence here in the U.S. at all or if they do, it's very limited. So we sort of fill that gap and uh, we work very closely with pretty much all of the motion picture lens manufacturers and we provide authorized service for almost all of them.
0: And the, the, your location, I didn't actually mention you're, you're in, you're in uh, California, aren't you? Yeah, so, we're in uh, so, California. That's it. So you are, um, you know, pretty much part of the, the, the Hollywood setup. Would that, would that be fair to say? Um,
1: I would say so. Yeah. If you ask our customers that, Live in Hollywood, they would gripe about having to drive all the way to Chatsworth. Uh, we're about a thirty to forty-five minute drive from Hollywood proper, uh, but we're, you know, two cities over from Burbank, which is uh, what most people here like to say. Burbank is where Hollywood actually works. Uh, so it's it's all we're all in the L.A. area, yeah.
0: but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's certainly been the case that um i mean in the in the stills world uh, i mean, I mean this, this, it's, there are there are virtually two different entities it seems um cine, cine, uh, Lenses and uh, and um, the still lens community and I, I have to say, I, I knew nothing of uh, Duclos lenses uh, before Cheyenne told me uh, about you and them. And um, mm-hmm. yet, the the people that you know, I've I've spoken to a, a few people uh, that have, have knowledge of the um, of the cine world. And I've mentioned him, and the, and the, and their reaction was, "Oh wow, you've got Matthew coming on," and they're really excited <laughs> about it. Um, so it's, it's it's quite interesting how the, how these two worlds um, don't don't seem to meet. Um, there's a there are few people that uh, go into both, but it tends to be that you know, you get stills photographers and and cine photographers, and I'm I'm certainly very much wedded to the uh, to the, to the still side, although I'm starting mm-hmm. to get a little bit more of an interest in, uh, in, in video, but, uh, I, whether or not that would actually, I'll go the whole log and move over to that side. I, I don't know, but certainly I can appreciate when you're watching a, a film or, um, a television uh, program that's particularly well filmed. Um, mm-hmm. you can, you can start to see, certain things going on there um with the way that that, that scenes are set up and then the, it's a it's a great skill when you see a, a perfectly composed um still um yeah there's, there's no movement going on uh, within the within the scene and then the shot pans or it moves or zooms in and zooms out and the, the composition starts in, in a great position and continues to be great all the way through the scene and i think mm-hmm. I think that's an absolutely incredible skill
2: you know yeah, it's, there's- it's Go ahead oh well I, no, because this relates directly to that topic um i've very rarely thought about shooting shooting videos on my on my sony l72 um and i've done a couple and they haven't been that great but <laughs> i have a friend who um got his degree um at florida state and cinematography and he's made some documentaries and um, he's continuing to do it and he's really good and um he bought an alpha 72 and, and and then and then th- that was kind of all the money he had to spend when he was a student and so I loaned him a bunch of lenses to use and um, one of the interesting things was so I, I loaned him um, some 50 mm millimeter lenses that he didn't really like and then I loaned him a, a Nikor 105 2.5 and a pentax super Takumar 105 2.8 and he, he didn't like the Nikor. And he still has the Pentax. I let him. I told him just keep it. And um, and, and I and I never really understand like which of my lenses would be good cinema lenses. And the only thing I can figure out is the focusing ring on the Nikkor has almost no damping in it at all. Mm-hmm. It's not as bad as the my fifty. But um, and the and the Takumar has this wonderful nice dampening in it. But I don't know if that's for, or the reason why
1: it very well could be there's a slurry of reasons that uh, any given lens would be good or bad for cinematography uh there's no there's no clear definition of what lenses work well especially these days because photography and cinematography have meshed together Um, we saw a huge influx when the uh uh, I guess actually, what started it would really be the 5D Mark II from Canon, and then just exploded with the A7. Um, of people coming from photography migrating into cinematography, um, it was just a massive influx, especially on the you know professional scale. Like people that were professional wedding photographers had to up their game and start offering cinema, you know, uh, video packages as well as their photography. So it's definitely blended into my business really, really well.
0: So, just just going back to where where um, I, I, I left off because you were you were just about to uh, answer. And I was talking about the, the the composition from a stills photographer point of view, mm-hmm. and how uh, some cinematographers seem to start off from a similar point, but they can actually hold things through through a whole scene. Um, is is, is there a, a fundamental difference between a, cinema, a cinematographer and a, a photographer, do you think?
1: Uh, fundamentally, no, not at all. I would say uh, the best way to summarize it would be that some photographers are also cinematographers, but pretty much every cinematographer is a photographer. Uh, from my experience with cinematographers, it's not uncommon for them to... In their spare time be a photographer it's just it's like uh it's like practice in your off season basically um, and it uh they really do lend themselves to each other perfectly so what a lot of the rules that you would use in photography could easily translate over to at least at the fundamental level to cinematography
0: yeah yeah, it's uh, and that and I think that's that's the other thing that uses in the, the, the people that use classic lenses. Um, when we're uh, watching uh, certain television programs and certain films, but it, it tends to be more for the, the high end um television programs. Um, I think um, one that comes to mind was The Killing, uh, the US version of, uh, of, of The Killing, uh, which so many scenes were clearly shot wide open uh, because mm-hmm. they were they were going for the uh for for bokeh balls all over the place uh mm-hmm. where, where, wherever possible and uh, and there also can be some times where I think a lot of us are almost like trying to work out what lens was used because of a certain look, or if, if the aperture closes down, <laughs> it closed into a certain shape, and thinking, oh, that might be an Industar 61LZ or, or or something like that. So mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, I, f- I find that, that, that quite interesting. So do you find that certain people, uh, s- cinematographers, go for a certain type of lens for a certain type of look?
1: Uh, absolutely. That's part of the reason that we are still around i would say is because uh because of digital cinematography and the fact that the cameras have gotten so good and so clean um cinematographers have begun reaching into their bag i mean this has always been the case but it's just exaggerated now they're trying to define themselves and differentiate themselves with lenses instead of film stocks um so the, the vintage lenses have become a massive, massive part of cinematography on you know throughout the entire scale, going from uh, you know relatively low budget music videos all the way up to feature films. Uh, there, everybody's looking for vintage lenses. So in that regard, it's been very, very uh, good to us.
0: That's, that's interesting when you're saying that people used to be differentiated with uh, with the film stocks and and where, whereas digital is digital and it's, it's a very clean uh, look in, in in itself. So mm-hmm. are you finding that people are actually gravitating more towards using different lenses, or is there actually still a preference to shoot with something modern and sharp, but do things in post processing instead?
1: Uh, it's it's really both. It completely depends on the project and the cinematographer. Uh, I'm sure that there are some cinematographers that are uh, they're hired and they're defined because they've created a specific look um, but at the same time you know if a director wants a specific look to a film, the cinematographer should be able to choose the lens based on that project uh, and sometimes that will call for something clean and crisp and perfect um, and then other times it will, you know it could massively benefit from a vintage lens that has a ton of character and on a on a from a technical perspective is highly flawed
2: yep you know i'm i'm still interested in this thing about um how a cine lens differs from a a lens that's made for still photography because i, I remember when i i don't have it anymore but i bought a modern manual focus lens it was a Rokinon 85 1.4 and there was a cine version of it and I remember when I was buying it looking at that and and the price was different and and wondering like what's the the difference between the two like how is the cine version different than the one that's made for still photography it must be optimized for something and then I Mm. wonder like I wonder is it like not as good for still photography
1: you you would hope so you would hope that you're paying has been optimized, um, but this is a topic that I've been struggling with for years now because a lot of people uh, it either tries they either try to go the way of justifying the additional cost, or there are the people that say, "What are you talking about? I use my eighteen to fifty five kit lens just fine. I don't need a cine lens." <laughs> so uh, I've been diving into this for a long time, and there's a couple different ways to think about it. Uh, the The true difference between a photo lens and a cine lens is really what it was designed for. Uh, and by designed, I mean, mostly the optomechanical design. So how the glass interacts with the mechanics, uh, that's potentially the most important part, the most important part uh, because you can't really change that. Um, you can change things like the housing, the, the gearing, the, the sleeves of the lens, whatever you want to call it. Um, but that optomechanical design is that's baked in. That's from conception to prototyping to designing and building the actual lens. Um, you can't really change that.
0: So what so what is that that, that difference then? A lens that's actually been built for, for use with cinema compared to a lens that's just that's been built for stills, what will be that that fundamental difference that you would be talking about there?
1: So there'd be a couple different key things Uh, one of the most obvious is going to be how the focus works. Um, And that's why vintage lenses are actually not too different from modern cinema lenses. So primarily you want the focus to be fully manual and to have a relatively long focus throw. So uh, 300 some odd degrees in rotation. Uh, When you're trying to rack focus with a lens that has a very short throw like uh like any modern um photography lens it's very challenging it's very difficult to to nail accurate focus uh by hand or even most cinematographers would be using uh, remote you know motors and a bunch of gadgets and whatnot um but that focus rotation is a huge part of it i'd say that's one of the most obvious differences um Beyond that, it, become, it, it there's a lot of technical reasons. Um, a cinema lens would be designed to compensate for something called focus breathing, which most photography doesn't really uh, take into consideration. Um, focus breathing is when you rack focus, your lens can tend to appear as though it's breathing or zooming in and out just a little bit. So one of the quickest ones i can think of would be uh, any of the canon or nikon or anybody uh all of the the 70 to 200 type lenses you know the telephoto zooms if you rack focus on those you could uh at, at close focus it could be pretty close to a 70 but then when you go to infinity it's more like a 90 or a 100 millimeter because it's kind of zooming in breathing in and out uh and for cinematography that's it uh, or uh, for photography, nobody cares because you snap the photo. It's static. It is the frame that you see. It's fine. But in cinematography, when you're shooting continuously and you rack focus, that breathing really takes you out of the the scene. It really sort of it's very jarring if it's uh, if it's too obvious, especially for people that are interested in that. Because you notice it. It's impossible for me to watch a movie these days without critiquing the the lens <laughs> characteristics.
0: I I know exactly where you where you're coming from There, I mean for for users um of, of stills uh lenses it it this tends to be more noticeable when you're taking a photograph of something very close uh, not necessarily. It doesn't have to be necessarily macro, but it'll certainly uh, happen at macro. But certainly, if you're getting close to the minimum focus distance and you mm-hmm. uh, you're adjusting the, the 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 focus because you've adjusted your position, you you can actually see the yeah. Even with the we're talking about here with a with a with a prime lens, yeah, you seem to be able to get closer or further away um, or the the scene changes doesn't it when you're actually in that focus ring but the, the 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 jarring effect that you're describing there is is that it's one of those tricks isn't it when you're when you're watching a film and there's a, a static uh, shot of a of a person talking or they, they're just looking at the reaction of a person and you can very very slowly see um there's, there's a very slow zoom on that person mm-hmm. because it's obviously, it wants to highlight the uh, the dramaticness of the moment and uh, it, it sort of ra- raises that, that, that uh, the dramatic effect. Um, so there's very good times when you actually want to achieve that, but there're going to be oh, plenty of sure. times where you absolutely don't. And that, and that's what you're talking about, isn't it? That, that, that could be really jarring because it's emphasising something that shouldn't be emphasised
1: right that's actually very common to do like a push-in where you're you're intentionally moving the camera closer to the subject or you're zooming if you're on a zoom lens very slowly uh, but it's it's painfully obvious if you see uh, you know the focus changes you have know, say your 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 foreground subject is a person and then they rack quick to a, a car that's twenty feet behind them and that whole frame looks like it zooms in or out with that focus rack uh it's very distracting well if, instead of instead of your eye going from one subject to the next which the director obviously intended uh you you look at the entire scene because it, in your head you think oh i something just got disrupted the, the whole scene's different now
0: I, I may i may pull you back on it on it a few times but ultimately this this show is is going to be for people who know very little about uh, about cinematography and i'm learning a lot already um okay, if, good. <laughs> and you've you've mentioned uh, the word rack focus several times and i think mm-hmm. it'll be worth just just covering what what that means
1: uh, rack focus for cinematography is basically the same thing as half pressing your shutter button on a still camera that has autofocus so rack focus is just the term for uh closer or farther focus literally turning your
0: focus ring right okay <laughs> pretty, pretty simple uh, um yeah there's a there's a there's a, something else to do with focus that um and i and i see this with lots of uh cinema lenses and also lots of classic lenses that have been adapted uh for use with cine, cine lenses and it always when you see these things there uh, pop up on ebay it, it makes a lens far more expensive um and then that's because they've they've been converted to is it is it Arri mount is that is that what it's called is it called ari or ari
1: um, I believe you're referring to PL mount.
0: Oh, PL, yeah,
1: and yeah, and... which is an ARI. It's ARI's design, um, or ARI, however you want to say. I I grew up saying ARI, but I've since been told it's ARI. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that's uh, it's sort of an open standard that ARI let people use free. You know, that, that's I don't I don't know exactly when PL mount was released, but I would guess uh
0: hmm
1: early or late 80s so if a lens has been converted to PL yeah that depending on the lens some lenses are extremely easy some lenses are nearly impossible so it could add significant amount of money
0: so so what what's so that that makes it to a a universal city standard of, of, of some description um so, what, what, what is that? Literally, just a matter of just chain, uh, swapping out the mount, and f- obviously, sometimes, it's, as you say, it's incredibly difficult. Sometimes it's easy, but is it effectively, in simple terms, is it literally just swap swapping the mount? Is that basically what that means? Uh,
1: what, what, what does what, what
0: mean? Uh, to to go to take a normal lens, um, whether it be M forty two or whatever it is, and and convert it to PL, um, is that effectively a mount swap?
1: Yes, exactly. Sometimes it's an adapter, uh, but in the case of PL, most of the time it's a a, a fixed conversion, which is a, a pretty big distinction. Adapters are usually pretty cheap. Conversion means there's a guy sitting at a bench modifying parts and installing new parts. It, it's much, much more expensive.
0: Okay. And again, this is, this is for a sort of a universal system, but obviously you don't put a, a PL mount lens onto onto a, a Sony mount uh, camera or video camera. Are there, are there certain...
1: Well, I do all the time. Oh, <laughs> ah,
0: okay. So do you have yeah, a, you an adapter PL... on the camera then, do you?
1: Yeah, you could do PL to E-mount. In fact, that's, I would say, 99% of my experimentation is uh, on an E-mount camera because that flange is so shallow. So I have, I, I mean, anytime I see a new adapter pop up, On Amazon or anywhere, really, Uh, anything to e-mount, I snag it so that I can test out everything I can. So I have as many mounts as you can think of to e-mount.
0: Right, and uh, the the other the other thing which um, I've realised now is not actually connected with PL, but a lot a lot of these lenses that are being um, uh, adapted for PL have also have this like a, a rack on the lens itself, um, like a rack and like a rack and pinion system, uh, oh, the gear, th- yeah. that's it. gear. That's, that's, that's mm-hmm. And, uh, so perhaps you could tell us a bit more about what, what, what that's doing on there.
1: Uh, traditionally in cinematography, you would use a range of accessories that allow you to control the focus a little more accurately than just grabbing it with your hand. Um, whether it's a, what we call a follow focus, which is, a uh, an external geared device that you would, uh, again, rack focus. It's basically a knob that mounts onto rails underneath the lens, uh, that are connected to a gear that connects to the lens. So for that follow focus to function, it has to have, the lens has to have the mating gear. And then the same concept with these days, it's actually more common to see a a remote, um, motorized focus system. So you'd have one little motor attached to something on your camera, whether it's rails or some kind of armature. um, And you control that motor with a a knob or in some cases, an iPad, whatever the accessory is. Um, But that motor still needs that same gear to interface with the lens. So it's all sort of plug and play universal solutions. It's very... uh, It's very open compared to photography. You know, you don't have to have lens brand A to match with camera brand A. You can take lens A and match it with camera C and everything still works fine.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, There's a a few other differences between um, cinema lenses and uh, stills lenses. And uh, one of them being, uh, if you actually buy a specific uh, cinema lens, it, it doesn't mention it's f-stop it talks in t-stops mm-hmm. um, that's that's, bit, tell us a bit that's more about still,
1: that that's still not really a, a design difference um uh, all cinema lenses even though they're marked in t-stops still have a, a theoretical f-stop uh, so it's not really a design difference at all it's just how they're labeled um it's almost, I, I draw a lot of similarities between lenses and cars, but it's kind of like saying this car is, uh, this, this photo car, we'll say, is, uh, is a four door, and this uh, cinema car is a sedan. Well, they're the same thing, you're just using different terms to describe them. So f stop and t stop are the same ways of measuring, uh, wherein f stop is a, a mathematic number, a theoretical number saying, you know, you've got this distance from the film plane and your aperture is this large. This is the num- this is your calculated number, your f-stop. Uh, and t-stop being the actual transmitted light uh, being measured coming out of the back of the lens. So for cinematography, they had to be a little more consistent and accurate when they change from one lens to the next. So they measure the actual light transmission that the lens is producing to keep everything as consistent as possible. Frame to frame. So, so for example, example some okay, some photo lenses. Me. Let's say you have like an f one point four. In most cases, that's about equivalent to t one point five. So it it, it goes. Uh, the 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 light transmission is usually in line with the stop. The t stop and the f stop are sort of tied together in most cases.
2: Yeah. Well, a couple of episodes ago, maybe. 49 or 48, I don't remember which one, we got on to talking about zoom lenses, and we were talking about um, a particular zoom lens that was par focal, and mm-hmm. um, I, I, I imagine that um, when people buy an expensive cine lens, it's a zo- its a zoom lens, they probably are par focal, right?
1: Yeah, so that is, for a properly designed cinema lens, that is a requirement, and right. in terms of photography, if someone says, oh, I got this lens and it's par focal, uh, it's probably not. They either <laughs> just don't know what they're looking for or they got a, a uniquely well uh, aligned lens. I can't think of any photo lenses that were designed to be par focal, but we do from time to time see like a vintage Nikon zoom where it just coincidentally holds focus through the zoom. But that's... I chalk that up more to luck than I do design.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say that, that lens, I know exactly which lens you're talking about there. And, uh, and actually I think it's just worth just quickly, just covering what par focal means. Um, sure. And, and that's, uh, and and correct me if I'm wrong on this, um, but the, uh, and I'll talk about the lens in, in particular, we were talking about, and it's the Canon FD 35 to 105 F 3.5. Mm. And um, so in theory, if you were focused on something uh, at the 35 millimeter end and you then zoomed to 105, uh, if that lens is parfocal, then th- your image would still be perfectly in focus.
1: Correct. Yep. All the way through the zoom, I might add as well. Yes. Not, not just at wide end telly, but the whole way through.
0: That's, that, so, that's it.
1: Yeah, um, the opposite of parfocal is, uh, it's a flaw that we call zoom curve. So as you're zooming, your focus would change which photography lenses traditionally don't care about because you're, you know, if it's, a, if it's a, a manual, you know, vintage manual lens, you're gonna zoom to whatever focal length you want and you're gonna grab your focus ring and take your shot at a fraction of a second. Uh, but with a cinema lens, it needs to hold focus through that zoom. Uh, otherwise, it's useless. And photo- photography lenses care about that even less because once you push that shutter button halfway, it doesn't care where the focus was. It's going to snap into focus immediately.
0: Well, I think that, that lens that we were talking about there, it was, um, Ivo, uh, Mikkelsen. Who uh, was uh, with us that week when we were talking about converting FD lenses to uh, to EOS? Uh, yeah. where He talked about the Ed Mika, uh yeah, yeah. mount replacement system. Um, but that uh, that particular lens, I've I've got a copy of it. I do I knew I had one somewhere, and I found it, <laughs> and uh, and I I tried it out. I uh, just just to test that, and I did exactly what I've just said there. I I, I focused on something at 35 millimeter, and then uh, zoomed it to 105, and I did that under magnification on my Sony. Uh, just to check the exact focus. And it didn't quite uh, work in the way that... I, I, w- I was hoping it was going to do. So perhaps that falls into the category that you've just been talking there, that sometimes it works. Uh, yeah. like you sometimes come across a lens that it, that it does. And it may be a case of uh, uh, the the one that um, Evo has and maybe a few other people, it, it works perfectly. But uh, certainly the, the, the one I tried it on, uh, I mean, it was close. Don't get me wrong. I mean, oh, yeah. I was, it was it was much better than um, I'm used to uh, to getting. Not that I actually paid that much attention because like, like you say, as a still photographer, it doesn't actually matter that much. Uh, exactly but yeah but in video yeah it's a, it's a, it's a big deal um another quick point about um and this is more of a, a cosmetic difference between the uh, cine lenses and uh, stills lenses is the the way that the uh, focus scale is orientated um, it's it's the opposite way. Well, it's it's turned through ninety degrees. So if if the lens is uh, horizontal, then the, the numbers, your focus scale is horizontal. Whereas uh, and on the side of the lens, whereas on a, a well, I think it's usually on the side anyway. Um, but mm-hmm. with the stills lens, it's uh, it sits on the, uh, the 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 top of the lens and, and uh, point. And it's orientated towards the uh, the user looking down upon mm-hmm. the focus scale. So what what's the uh, what's the history of that difference?
1: That's That comes down to strictly by design where the camera, or I should say the lens, is expected to be held. So for cinematography, you're usually standing right next to the lens. Uh, there's no firm rule saying you have to stand next to the camera. Um, you know, especially these days with stuff on cranes and dollies, you, more often than not, you're not standing next to the camera. But uh, traditionally, there would be a person, the camera operator, standing right next to it. So you want those focus marks to be visible as you are standing next to it. Whereas with photography, traditionally it would be on a strap around your neck and it's hanging right below you so when you look down you can see those focus marks.
2: Um yeah. Go ahead. No, I was wondering about that too because I actually had on the screen a picture of a of a Sigma Cine lens. Well, one of the, the first things I noticed, is it seems like every time I look at one of these cine lenses, it has this great big number on the front of it that says what the um, lens is. So, it's, this is a twenty-four t one point five, and it's this huge number which I don't mm-hmm. ever see on um, on um, on the lenses that we buy. But um, on the Sigma t- twenty-four t one point five, it's really interesting because there's a there's a ring for the uh, aperture and it has the t numbers, mm-hmm. and so um, and then there's and then there's a ring which has feet. And uh, next to it, and then there's another, and then there's another scale uh, that has feet also, and it's upside mm-hmm. down. But it's upside down relative to the other two numbers. So if so I was standing goes, next to it, it would be one upside down and the other the right way.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So that goes back to uh, the the focus rotation. So those lenses have, I believe, it's about 180 on the, those. in particular, the Sigma Cines. Um So when you have your operator you usually have a, an operator and an assistant cameraman and uh, the the main guy would be st- the left side of the camera so if you're looking at the camera from the back the main guy would be on the left and we call that the smart side uh so those marks on that side are the main marks that you u- would use and it's not uncommon to have another guy on the other side that's either watching the marks or confirming the marks and or he's actually the one pulling the marks uh, pulling focus uh and we call that the dumb side just because it's the opposite of the smart side um so they have to have and again it's not a hard fast rule traditionally you would have marks on both sides of the lens so that both guys standing on either side of the camera can see the same focus marks
0: um another another question about focus and autofocus it's um, mm-hmm. it's 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 interesting when you see camera reviews and they, they'll they do a video review of a new lens or a new camera and uh and they'll they'll use the autofocus of, of the camera and the lens to see how well it tracks the person as they're coming closer and moving away and, and all that kind of stuff but you go into the world of hollywood and it mm-hmm. appears that well does does autofocus even exist in hollywood or is it all manual focus uh
1: it, it- Kind of exists. There are some third-party tools that essentially use, uh, I don't know if you'd call it sonar or radar or IR, I don't know, but um, essentially it's a tool that you would mount to the camera that uh, looks at the distance and then that talks to a motor, like we talked about earlier, attached to the lens and says, okay, your subject that you're pointing at right now is at this distance, focus the lens to that distance. Uh, And that's kind of autofocus. There are some cinema cameras that have embraced that, particularly with Sony and Canon, because they have that technology already. Um, But it's still not really welcome in the world of cinema because, as I'm sure you guys... Well, I I don't know how often you play with autofocus lenses, but uh, it's not uncommon for that focus, for that camera to hunt and rack back and forth to find the correct focus which would be terrible in a motion picture environment i can't imagine going to see avengers and having the focus jump around trying to find the you know the best spot in the focus and on top of that the canon or sony or whatever the camera doesn't necessarily know what the cinematographer wants in focus you know you can select a face and have track a face and that might be useful for certain things but uh having a a computer I, i think that's what it boils down to having a machine or a computer try to achieve something artistic isn't really uh realistic it's not it's not ideal it has that feeling to be able to pull focus like that
0: I think it's. I think it's fair to say that uh, the majority of listeners probably share my view that uh, autofocus is the work of the devil. <laughs>
1: uh, well, must- yes and no. I, and ninety percent of my photography is with manual focus lenses, but I do. Uh, I, I'll, I'll take that work of the devil when it comes to my three-year-old running around the yard, and I can't possibly focus fast enough without autofocus.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm in agreement with that. I, I prefer autofocus for birds and flight and uh, go, fast, yeah. fast, fast moving things. Um, it's, you know, it, it has its place, but uh, for yeah. most proper photography, it's uh, it's unnecessary. Uh, <laughs> but it it it's, um, it heartens me actually that the uh, that the cinema the cinema world still values uh, ma- manual focus. Um, yes, um, and that 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 just makes me feel happy. I've got to say.
2: Well, you know, along the same lines, it's, it's interesting because I, I was reading about cine lenses and I, was, and I was thinking, geez, you know, cine lenses are designed more like classic lenses than modern um, still photography lenses are because there's the um, manual focus. And then the, I don't know if this is true, but, but um, that um, they're designed to have really nice bokeh and attractive light flaring at mm-hmm. at, at, uh, at a shallow depth of field. And those are things that modern lenses have tried to eliminate as, as flaring.
1: Uh, cinema lenses did too for, for a couple, maybe about a decade. It was in tandem with photography lenses where the engineers were trying to make the best lenses they could. So these guys, uh, these major lens manufacturers spent probably two decades refining technology because they really haven't changed that much over the past 10 decades, really. Uh, But they've just tried to make lenses as good and clean as possible. And then come, you know, digital cinematography, that whole revolution, all of a sudden everyone is telling these lens manufacturers, well, thanks for making these lenses so perfect, but we want them to be bad again. It's it's been extremely interesting working so closely with all these manufacturers and these guys that, you know, uh, doctors that have gone to school for many, many years to become uh, optical engineers. They don't necessarily know the art of cinematography or photography, they know the science and physics of optics. So trying to explain to them, you know, these manufacturers and say, Yeah, I understand you've got these coatings that get rid of all the flair and, you know, you've got these aspheres and all these cool tricks. Forget them. (laughs) You know, bring back some of that stuff that you guys worked so hard to get rid of over the past couple of days. It's it's difficult to explain to them why we want that. So that's been a a huge challenge in the industry.
0: Well, talking of flair... Uh, there's a particular kind of flair and where we've had, we have we've had questions on on this subject in in, in the past, and there's also a specific question that uh, I'm going to have to try and dig up. But uh, let, can we talk about anamorphic, uh, sure. anamorphic adapters, and uh, and um, yeah, let's an- anamorphic adapters, and if you can tell us all about that, what it, what it's about, and what, what what's so special about it?
1: Uh, anamorphic is another difficult topic um so anamorphic is essentially squeezing a larger frame or a larger field of view onto a smaller film or in this case and these days is a sensor um but originally it was so that you can get a wider field of view on a smaller film it was cheaper it made it the idea was to keep it cheaper than shooting massive film uh so it was strictly to just have a wider field of view. And over the last 50 some odd years, um, well, I'll step back a little more. So those lenses inherited a ton of flaws that, sure, you got a wider field of view. You, know, you could see a wider um, angle, but they inherited a lot of problems with focus fall off, illumination fall off, weird, obscure flares, all sorts of things. Uh, and, and then at the time, engineers couldn't figure out how to correct them, so they just made these lenses strictly to have a wider angle. Uh, so now you flash forward to today, and it's just become a look. It, it's a nostalgia. A lot of the classic movies that people associate with anamorphic lenses have a look to them, which at the time was not supposed to be a look. It was a uh, it was a means to an end, because we all remember those classic films, everyone wanted those looks so these days anamorphic has nothing to do with the field of view or a wider frame um, we have technology these days to make lenses extremely wide angle so that's not a problem anymore the i would say 99.9 percent of the purpose for using anamorphic lenses in today's cinematography for the look the style the bokeh, the flares, the focus fall off, all that stuff.
0: Right. And now I've got a, a question there because I, I asked uh, the community on MFLenses.com to, uh, uh, to put some questions in and uh, I've got a question here from, uh, from oh, I don't know how to pronounce this. Uh, I know Johnny, uh, Tr- struggled once from this this person I, i'm going to say uh stylist um wrote uh, could you ask matthew uh, if he's tried them um what he thinks of the filters out there um that are meant to provide an anamorphic look um I'm, i actually don't entirely understand the question whether we're talking about a lens that goes on the front of a lens which i do want to talk about or whether it is what he's, he's saying there a a filter if that means something to you
1: yeah, I would imagine he's referring to something like a streak filter, which essentially just uses um, vertical blue or clear streaks uh, that will simulate the traditional anamorphic flares. So a lot of people, you know, they, they, we all joke and call it the J.J. Abrams look because he really yeah. took it to the nth degree. Um, but he was using proper anamorphic lenses. You can get a similar effect with Simple drop-in filters,
0: right? And and what's your what's your general view of of those those filters?
1: Uh, I like them when they add to the story or when they add to the the character of the scene. Um, but I don't like it when people use them strictly to try and look like they have a more expensive lens.
0: Right, right. So, so, and, and would it be fair to say that if you were tr- whether whether you, you you personally like the the look or whether it's used correctly or not, um, it, there is there is a place for, for such, such a such a filter if somebody wanted to do that as a as a shortcut, perhaps.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I I don't disagree with that at all. And again, depending entirely on what you're shooting, if you're trying to get a vintage look or a vintage feel, if it's a period piece that's supposed to take place in the the 60s or 70s when that look was popular uh that's a really quick easy cheap way to do it you can spend fifty thousand dollars on a proper anamorphic lens or you can spend a hundred bucks on a filter and get a, a relatively similar i wouldn't even say similar but you can achieve some of those flaws with that filter
0: okay um well i think i think that one's covered that that question now I'd like to talk a bit about anamorphic lenses because they, these are some things that you know, we we see crop up on, mm-hmm. uh, on on eBay from time to time, and uh, some of us have, have pressed the button, and thinking, well, let's let's just give it a go and uh, yeah. and get one, and, uh, uh, and they're usually made by people like uh, like Cower. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they make them and a few, a few other, 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 people. Um, and then the general experience of most people, and I've had this experience, uh, when I've tried one of these things myself is, is to try, it, the idea is that it's meant to go in front of an existing lens. Um, and then, but there's usually some kind of method of, um, fitting it to the front of the lens that doesn't come with it. So you have to try right. and work something out for yourself, but uh, I mean, a lot of us that listen to this podcast have got a bit of experience of free lensing and uh, just trying to make a lens work in front of another. So we, we think to ourselves, well, we know a bit about this, so we should be able to make something work. And uh, I I had to go with one of these. Uh, it was a Kowa Promenar uh, lens. I can't remember which, I don't know if it was D16. I think it might have been called or something like that. And uh, I really, really struggled to get anything out of it so clearly i was doing something wrong um so so perhaps you could tell us what is the right way to use one of these lenses exactly
1: so that's where a lot of the crossover is happening right now because with those anamorphic, the, the ones that you're talking about in particular what we would call an anamorphic attachment uh yeah. you still need a taking lens and like i was saying before you can have that streak filter that gets some of that effect, but if you put that filter on a brand new clean lens, like a Zeiss Otis, then you're just going to have the streaks and everything else is going to be perfectly clean and crisp and sharp. So if you pair one of those front anamorphic attachments with a vintage lens, then you get all of those features. You get you know, your vintage lens already has great bokeh and it has uh, a nice focus fall off, maybe a soft in the corners, maybe a nice pleasing vignette. Um, and you combine that with the other factors of an anamorphic front attachment, and you could get a really nice vintage look. Uh, and that's actually not uncommon. A lot of the proper anamorphic lenses um, vintage, I should say, the, a lot of the proper vintage anamorphic lenses were just that. They took a uh, an existing lens, whether it was cine or still, and they designed in a, a, um, a cylinder element or a cylinder group to make it anamorphic a lot of the early anamorphics were. They weren't designed from the ground up with a, a, a squeeze, with a cylinder element. They just added stuff on top of an existing lens. So the people that are doing that these days they are finding any sort of cylinder elements they can find, whether it's a, a projection lens from a theater or a, a projector of some kind, something designed specifically to do that. But because there's no standardization across the front of lenses you know every lens has a different filter thread and different mechanical design uh that's that part where you said where you have to kind of figure it out on your own And some people make accessories that work you know you can pair up this front animal perfect with this lens and it works okay but uh, they're very very gimmicky and, and mickey mouse and work very well uh, and then on top of that, you usually have to focus both the anamorphic and the taking lens simultaneously, which makes for very difficult work.
0: Yeah, I can, I can certainly go go with that. So, um, so what what what's what type of what typical lens in in the classic lens world uh, would you be wanting to to start off with, and then pair it with, say, one of these uh, these these Kawa, uh filter filter lens? Well, uh, one of these. Uh, attachment lenses. Uh,
1: I mean, the sky's the limit. You, you choose whatever. I think I would. I think most people start with what other people are using. You'll know, look on the forums and Facebook, and there's a couple like Pentax or some vintage Zeiss that seem to work okay. Um, but there's really no. There's no rules. I mean, you use what you like, really.
0: <laughs> so so in terms of focal length then, is, is there a, is there a sweet spot on focal length or doesn't actually the focal length of the lens make that much of a difference?
1: Uh, I, you can't go too wide because then it, you're just going to see the inside of the, the unit. So I'd say anywhere from 35 to 85, I guess. Mm-hmm. But there's no, again, there's no hard and fast rule saying you have to use these focal lengths. If you get the right, Adapter with the right uh, taking lens, it could make for a pretty interesting result. Or you know, that specific pairing could look terrible.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's let's move things on into a into a, a slightly different direction. And uh, and perhaps you could tell there there is a there are a lot of people that are using uh, what, what we call classic lenses for cinematography. And mm-hmm. um, certain lenses are more desirable in in your world than others. And um, I'm just wondering if you could perhaps go through a few lenses uh, that we might be talking about there, and which which ones are particularly pop- popular, and uh, perhaps why.
1: Um, again, it's really whatever floats your boat. We can. There's no. There's no rules to modifying lenses. We'll we'll take whatever we can. Uh, and modify it for cinema use if that's what you're asking but the ones we see the, the ones that lend themselves most often are the ones that are easiest and quickest to to modify in my experience
0: right so so in other words it it's it, well a lot a lot of people gravitate just to, to lenses um that to well to preset lenses in in particular because they have a smooth um, aperture ring because you've got the preset ring which which clicks which I've, I i don't know if you ever listened to that show but I, I took a great deal of flack for getting it the wrong way round uh, which is the preset ring which is the aperture ring and um preset rings have got the ability to have a very very smooth uh, aperture change because the if you've using the aperture ring there it has no stops on it as such so you get mm-hmm. you can you can have that smooth transition if that's what you're what you're looking for so um lenses in particular that I've spoke about or people have spoke to me about have been like the the Pentacon uh, 135 uh, 2.8 the 1 by uh, Meyer Optic, for instance um is that is that a lens that you that you come across often or is that mm, some...
1: no, not really. In fact, those lenses with the preset ring are usually less desirable uh right. from, from my perspective. Uh one of our most unbelievably successful offerings has been our declicking service. That's
2: the what lenses, I wondered, yeah.
1: Yeah, Nikon AIS or Leica R, Contax Ishika, uh uh I mean, it goes on and on. Takmars, all of those have the click stops in the iris. And we started offering a service to remove the click stops and dampen the movement with a, a proper lens grease. I don't know, maybe, maybe 10 years ago. And I thought we would do a couple of them here and there and people would lose interest because it's not a real cine lens. But uh, they haven't stopped. We, we must have... I can't even fathom. I, I mean, we're probably talking... Somewhere between five and ten thousand lenses, we must have de-clicked over the past ten years.
2: Wow.
0: Wow! Yeah. Well, de-clicking de- de- is an interesting one again, that's something that pops up on eBay uh mm-hmm. every now and again and a declick lens tends to be a little bit more expensive than a than a, 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 con- a conventional lens um i mean yeah. i've i've uh my experience of declicking is usually in so i don't do this anymore i, I get somebody knows what, they, what they're doing but uh, i used to have a go when i was trying to repair my own lenses um, mm-hmm. um i would often declick a lens um, <laughs> because i would lose the ball bearing that i, I was uh, gonna say that that was, like yeah um, yeah and uh, and you ju- and you just know that if mm-hmm. i lose a ball bearing. Now, like I say, I haven't done it now for a long time. But if I, should I do it again, I'll lose a ball bearing. I will. I will advertise it as being de-clicked there you go. <laughs> and try and justify more money for it. But uh, but so it's, it's de-clicking.
1: It can be relatively easy. You can simply lose the ball bearing and the spring yeah. underneath it. Uh, but for us, would it uh, the the extra step, the difference between a, a hobbyist and us is the the type of grease that's being used yeah. and the uh, the friction. Because um, I mean, you could. Search for lens grease on forums and everything, but uh, you'll get tons and tons of different results. And people saying, Oh, I found this grease in my father's garage and it worked fine. Yeah, it's fine for now until it starts outgassing and gets all over your glass or it breaks down and then starts leaking onto your iris blades. And there's just so many, uh, there's, there's a lot of DIY de clicking out there that it'll get the job done, but may not work well in the long run.
2: No, I remember, um, Simon, um, you probably ruined one of these yourself. I had a, 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 a silver nose, uh, an Olympus uh, 50 with 1.4 with a head fungus in it, and I'm um, trying to take it apart and ruining the lens, but de-clicking it as part of the process. And then the um, the aperture ring was just so, it's just you know, spun almost. It, there was no resistance or anything left. It yeah, was gone. It was useless.
0: Yeah, I think I think I think most of my D clicking was with Olympus lenses for some reason. Uh so uh yeah, yeah, I've I've been, been there, got got the uh got the t shirt on that one. Um So, uh, so when I was
2: reading yesterday when I was reading about um, Cine lenses, <clears throat> one of the things they talked about is that um if you're getting into cinematography, you know, the real prime Cine lenses are super expensive, 50,000, 100,000. Um but you can, you can, and then they talk about the Cine mod lenses. I guess that's taking a classic lens. But then there's this pseudo Cine lens. What the heck is that?
1: Uh, oh, I've never heard that term before, but I imagine it's a lens. Oh, and this, I was going to elaborate on this more as well. But, um, I, I would imagine a pseudo-cine lens is something that's either been modified or a manufacturer has taken an optical design from their photography line and done their own factory rehousing to make it a cine lens. Yeah. Which is, it's not uncommon at all these days.
2: Yeah. That's probably like those Rokinons that I talked about earlier. Exactly. you could get in two different versions.
1: The only difference is they cast a slightly different plastic shell, so it has the gears on it. Uh-huh. And there's a, a stepless aperture movement. They, they've literally declicked it themselves at the factory. Uh, yeah. There's no difference in the optics whatsoever. Yeah. Or the mechanics, for that matter, the, the internal mechanics. Yeah. And then but, you have one step above that, Rokinon, or I should say, Samyang is the, the actual company. Rokinon is just a, 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 a yeah. name here in the US. There's yeah. no Rokinon company at all. Yeah. Um, but the company Samyang in Korea, they took, again, the same optics because a lot of people liked the the lenses and they, but they wanted a, a different amount and they wanted a slightly more robust body that wasn't plastic. So they took those same optics and dropped them into a, a proper aluminum housing with a much larger focus rotation. Uh, and that's just a one step above, uh, the ones that you were talking about that they look nearly identical. And again, it's still the same optics, so it's still a photo lens at heart, but with the addition of a, a nice metal body and a stepless aperture ring and a nice long focus rotation, it's just that much closer to a cinema lens. I
0: yeah. think you're talking about the, uh, is it the, the, zine, the zine? The zine, range. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yep, yeah. Exactly.
0: Yeah, I was I was I've been curious about those lenses because, uh, uh, especially from the optical side, because uh, Samyang have in relatively recently introduced a, a, a higher grade of optics. And mm-hmm. I don't know if they call them the pre, SP line. Pre, yeah. yeah, that's it. So I, I was wondering if if those those are
1: pretty nice. Actually, I, yeah. I had I had pretty high expectations because they were specifically saying this is sort of the best we can do optically. They are nice, uh, but wide open. You're still going to a CA, which is kind of disappointing.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: But so. Right, they have a whole line of lenses, I noticed, that are... Um, I don't even know what this all means. 85mm um, T1.5 Cine DS lens. So DS,
1: um, that's their same, it's the same exact internal mechanics, glass, everything, as their regular photo.
2: Okay, so that's not a real Cine, yet. uh-huh. No, okay. not
1: really. They, they sell it... <laughs> So DS is short for dual scale. So it has a scale on both sides like we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, that's the the biggest difference there because they also have the Rokinon Cine that is not a DS and it only has a scale on one side. But still, it's nearly identical. And that, that was really them. Uh, we kind of helped put Rokinon on the map for cinema because we would take their photo lenses that have that nice rubber grip we'd put a focus gear on it and then we'd declick click the aperture and they saw how many of those we were moving and how many were modifying and they said well why don't we just do that from the factory so it's essentially broken on taking our cine mod concept and applying it at the factory kind of like we discussed earlier
0: right, so yeah, yeah. And i can
2: i can really see the difference externally even um just looking at a real cine lens like here's a tokina 11 to 20 cinema atx and it has all same those thing. weird ones that we talked about but it has the well, that, the two scales that are in the different direction than each other and all of that kind of stuff yeah
1: that's that's the exact same story tokina uh that lens is identical oh, is really? to their 11 to 20 photo lens no mm-hmm. whatsoever it's just they've modified it that one too <laughs> i don't want to take too much credit mm-hmm. but uh we, one of our first project, one of our first big rehousing projects when we started 15, no, when did we start? Like 17 years ago, something like that. Um, was a rehousing of the Tokina 11 to 16 where we parked the lens uh, and put it in a whole new housing that was cinema friendly. And we sold tons of those things for cinema use. Uh, and eventually Tokina caught on to what we were doing because we were buying out stock everywhere we could, all over the country, really. Um, and they said, well, let's just do this at the factory instead of letting Duplos do it. So they did. And that's what started their whole Cinema ATX line.
0: Yeah. Uh, just one question on the uh, Samyang ones, on their zine line. Uh, mm-hmm. are, are they... Um, do they have the the correct focus characteristics of a, of a cinema lens because like say they, they rehoused and so on so do they lack the focus breathing the, as they as of a more expensive lens or is that or that's or was that still in place would you know
1: that's definitely still in place so that's an optomechanical design if they wanted to that, that's baked into that lens design um, right if they wanted to compensate for focus breathing they would have had to change the design to incorporate some sort of uh, a floating element to to get rid of that, but the fact that these are the same exact optical design as the photo version means that that is definitely still there.
0: Right. I, I mean, I was wrong wrongly thinking there that, that this is this is purely down to the me, the mechanics that are used. Um, uh, rather than actually the, the the two things being as closely related as as, as you're saying there, so uh, right, yeah. So again, that's a reason why a, a true cine lens is going to be a, a lot more expensive because you're also talking much lower volumes as well, aren't you? that's, that's going to be the other side of things.
1: Generally, yeah, absolutely. It's a, a matter of scale. That's that's part of the reason that cinema lenses are so expensive. Canon will sell hundreds of thousands of uh, you know, twenty-four to seventy. But that focal length, same focal length, of sort of specs in a cinema lens may sell a fraction of that, just because it's not as popular.
0: Yeah, make makes sense, and that could also be the reason. Because I'm just just on your your site at the moment, and uh, it's interesting that you've got two. Cook lenses, uh, C O K E lenses, and that's a, that's a name that uh, it's a famous old name in, in photography uh-huh. lenses. Um, which, frankly, until I actually went onto your page, I thought they would went out of existence. Years and years ago, yeah, yeah. Here they are sitting here, and the, and I can buy a brand new uh, thirty-five to one forty T three point one for just sixty-three thousand seven hundred
1: and fifty dollars. <laughs> so, uh, oh yeah, that's on, that's on sale. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so. Cook obviously uh, made the decision uh, some time ago to get out of still photography and uh, and 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 go into uh, just stay or stay with cinema lenses. Because I assume that the history with Cook goes back a long way, does it? With uh, with cinema lenses?
1: Absolutely. Cook goes. I mean, they were some of the first cinema lens manufacturers, uh, and I. I mean, credit where credits due. Cook is a pioneer of a lot of different optical technology, stills and cinematography. Um, and they've been around consistently. They, they tapered off for a little while in the late 80s. They weren't really doing much at all. And they, they've changed hands a couple of times. Uh, they've changed names a couple of times. Rank Taylor and Hobson or Taylor and Hobson. Um, but these days they are thriving because of digital cinematography. And they're still in the, the same factory they've been in in, uh, in Leicester, uh uk which i uh, i highly recommend i'm not sure how far that is from you but they do tours and they have a museum in leicester that really has some awesome stuff uh it, it's related to vintage lenses
0: yeah it's it's not that far from me it's probably about uh, driving wise maybe an hour and a quarter something like that so uh oh you've got to go over there <laughs> yeah I, i'm making a note that we need to yeah need to go to cook um, um so. if, if you
1: <laughs> want to if you ever do that, um, drop me an email and I'll, I'll connect you with the guys at the factory.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. That's this, this will be happening. Um, okay. <laughs> um, um, okay. I want to move, move things on because, um, I know there's a, a significant audience uh, waiting for a particular part of this podcast. And, uh-huh. um, and, um, we're going to be talk. I want, I want to talk about a lens, uh, one of, uh, well in, in our world, at least, um, one of the most famous and desirable lenses on the planet, um, with it being a a lens that uh, was designed to take photographs off the planet and um, somewhere going around the moon. Um, And I believe there were 10 of them made, uh, and they were all made for NASA uh, by Carl Zeiss. And it's the 50 millimeter F 0.7 planar. And you have one, don't you?
1: Uh, I don't own one I have one in my possession um, uh, there's so much folklore around that lens um, most people in, in in my world would refer to it as the Kubrick lens um, I don't think any of us would even know it existed without Stanley Kubrick having used it on Barry Lyndon um, and really making it infamous uh, so there's a ton of folklore and I'm sure there's people out there that know more about it than I do Um because there's just so much hearsay. And I think even one of your, uh, followers on Facebook noted that Zeiss maybe didn't actually even manufacture it. It was just a Zeiss design. I, I don't, I again, I have no idea if that's true. Um, I don't think even Zeiss knows who actually manufactured it. Cause I've asked them if they had one in there, have sort of a museum in Germany and they've said, no, they don't, um, but yes, as far as I know, there were 10 of them made. Five went to NASA. Five went to Kubrick. Kubrick modified um, four of them from their original condition. Two of them, they kept the same focal length and they added some, some uh, cinema features. And then another two, they modified with a wide-angle adapter on the front so they could see a, a, a wider field of view and they lose some light. Uh, and then that last one, remained untouched because in production, if somebody drops something or something, you know, camera falls over, whatever, uh, they needed to have a backup, you know, replacement parts. If I said, that's it, we're done, the ten are gone, we're not going to make any more, and someone scratches a piece of glass, you have to have somewhere to get uh, a replacement glass. So the one that was in my possession... It, or sorry the one in my, in my possession was that one that was completely untouched just in case something went wrong so it's completely original in fact as far as i know it's the only completely original one
0: right uh, now you've you've mentioned that your you, your knowledge of uh deep knowledge of the lens is is, is not is not great um but right. it it would be um helpful if you, or would you, would you mind telling us what you do know about the lens? Perhaps if you know anything about specifically what, what it was for, for instance, uh, the type of photography it was meant to do.
1: Uh, I think you mentioned it as far as I know, again, it's for shooting the dark side of the moon is the, the common rumor. I don't know if Zeiss would agree with that, but, uh, that was the whole mythology was that NASA was using it to shoot extremely dark locations. Um, and from my experience, it's a, actually a pretty terrible lens. I don't want to crush anyone's dreams, but it's it's not. <laughs> I'm gonna <it's>, bleep you. <laughs> it's uh, from a technical standpoint. I would say, even from an artistic standpoint, it's not a very good lens. Um, it is extremely fast, which means your your focus is extremely shallow. Um, the I was only ever able to capture an image on a fuji camera because there's no olpf the distance the the air spacing from the very back element to the film plane is about four millimeters so if you imagine a piece of glass four millimeters in front of your sensor pretty much any any camera with an olpf uh, can't use that lens at all
0: People's people's um, dreams have been shattered now.
1: I apologize, (laughs) and I also haven't. A lot of people ask me to t-stop it to see what the actual light transmission is, and for that same reason, I have never put it on my t-stop bench because I don't want to crush my dreams or anyone else's dreams.
0: (laughs) Um,
1: That's that's why our t-stop bench is nicknamed the heartbreaker because (laughs) people get these, these. the manufacturer will say T1-3 or T1-2 or something like that, and and they'll bring it to us, and we'll measure the light transmission coming out of the back. that's like, ah, actually closer to T1-5, but,
0: you know, whatever. <laughs> um, okay. Um, I'm just trying to pick myself up off the floor at the moment now. Um But... Um, <laughs> okay the, the the lens itself it was used famously in Barry Lyndon. Um, yes uh, by
1: candlelight Stone. only that whole thing yeah
0: that's it so so Kubrick managed to make it work um, and uh, and I think you've already t- touched upon it um, he he didn't just use the lens as is he, he put something in the um, uh, is it a Col- Colmorgan converter those are
1: some I think those were the wide angle ones, yeah, the ones that he modified for a, a wider field of view. But the original ones, as far as I know, stayed, not the original, but the, the other ones stayed as a 50 millimeter focal length. Um, but they did still modify them to fit onto that camera they were using, which, because that, uh, like I said, that four millimeter distance between the back, ele- the rear element, and the film plane, um, they couldn't use a camera with a spinning mirror for the, the viewfinding system. So they modified it for use on a rackover system. There'd be a, a a framing lens that they would use to get the shot or to, to get the uh, the scene all lined up, and it would rack over to the Zeiss, where they would actually roll the film. But they couldn't have a spinning mirror in there because the lens was so close to the film.
0: So it was, it was effectively almost like a TLR lens of, uh, uh, to some degree. Then by by the sound. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. almost like a. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess you could say that. Just you would only be using one lens at a time. <laughs> you'd have to yeah. you'd have to switch it over or, or roll it over, quite literally.
0: So the actual camera that was used to with with that lens would, did that have to be modified in itself because it literally would have to. Did, uh, yeah was that was that a camera that was literally had to be built for to take that lens, or was it just something that was a relatively easy modification because cine lenses can do this kind of thing?
1: I bo- was the way it was I don't think they modified it but I'm not sure
0: hmm.
1: that because they had a um, they had a, a Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick exhibit here at uh, I think it was LACMA and uh, they had the camera and not that lens but some of the lenses on display and it was pretty cool to see that whole system uh, it's, it's such a massive camera you couldn't possibly dream of operating it these days
0: Right. Well, I'm just going to say the, uh, I, how I got that piece of information there about the, uh, Cole Morgan converter, uh, is because there is a, there's a thread on, the, in the forum section of mflentist.com, um, where, um, prior to, uh, you coming on, the, on the show originally, but obviously you, you were going to be coming on with us at the, at the start of the year, um, I asked uh, if anybody had any questions, and uh, oh yes, <laughs> there were loads of questions <laughs> about that lens. Yeah. Um, but it, it's it's the the thread is well worth, um, for the, our listeners, uh, it's well worth finding this thread out and it's, it's just called, uh, Ice Plane R 50 millimeter F slash 0.7 on mflenses.com on the forum section. Um, and, uh, I mean, let's face it, if you, if you start a thread off with that title, you know, you're going to get people looking at it. Um, but, um, yeah, so I invited questions. And uh, and there the are certainly questions, but actually most of the questions are actually answered within the thread. And, yeah, uh, oh yeah. And I would urge uh, anybody that's interested in uh, in this lens to have a read of it, because as I say, i got that bit, piece of information about the Colmorgan converter from, uh, it was uh, KDS315 who uh, who posted that. Um, I don't actually know what your proper name is. Oh, oh is it, was it Klaus? It might have been Klaus, I'm not sure. But yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, that, uh, that was where I got that particular piece of information from. And yeah, there's, um, some,
1: there's some and, amazing articles that go far more in detail than I could about, uh, again, what I assume is uh, uh, myth around the lens. I'm sure some of it's fact, but uh, I would always take those kinds of articles with a, a grain of salt.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, this uh, actually, it was Klaus that, uh, that, that posted that. Uh, particular one. I mean that 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 wasn't on the the uh, that wasn't a, a, a pinch of salt um, mm. bit that he put in there. But uh, I'm just thinking it's but it is well worth uh, looking at this one because it's it's well discussed. There's lots of good information. There's also other lenses that might have been the precursor to that lens as well, um, such as the R Biotar uh, 55 uh, mm. 0.5 and 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 so on and so on. So. Uh, Please uh take a take a look at that uh, that thread because it's it's well worth a read. Um yeah.
1: but Klaus stands German, so I trust him.
0: Yes, exa- exactly. Um <laughs> and uh yeah, so your your experience of of, of using it was was, was with, with a Fuji that you just managed to get it uh, to work with. But I was just wondering because I think you've got access to a medium format uh digital camera, is that is that correct?
1: Uh
0: yeah. Yeah, I, saw, I mean couple <laughs> yeah and I, I was just wondering if, if that if that that might have been a um, might be an option for um for for mounting mounting to, to a medium format because I'm, I'm just just thinking you might actually have a bit more room to be able to get the uh, the lens close enough to the to the sensor perhaps
1: um that's a good question i don't know if well a couple of my medium format cameras are film and it could work there, but I would definitely need to make uh, a custom mount because the lens isn't in a standard mount or a a common mount. Um, And then in terms of digital, uh, my digital medium format stuff, I I actually don't know if it has a, a low pass filter. I'd have to look into that. But if it doesn't, then that would actually be pretty easy to put it on a medium format digital back.
0: Hmm. Well, <laughs> let's uh, let's hope that uh, that 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 does something for us. Uh we'll, yeah, we, that no. that would be great if uh, we if we can see something there. Um, let's yeah. do some uh, some googling. <laughs>
1: phase Phase so
0: One. The, so there's a, on uh, online.
2: This is a bizarre thing because while you guys have been talking, I've just been looking at things, and there is I don't know if this is real or not. A, a Carl Zeiss Super Q Gigantar Forty F Zero Point Three Three.
1: Oh, I've seen
2: that. Yeah, is it a
0: real lens? Oh my God! Uh, let me see if I
1: can find that one
0: again. I'm, I'm going to say the it answer, is. Yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. Um, I, I think I know what this lens is. And I, I believe. I mean, I could, be, I could be completely wrong, but I've, I, it's, it's my belief that this was, this was uh, Zeiss having a bit of fun. Uh, with with people because there was uh, this this race to make lenses very very wa- uh, very very fast um, uh-huh. and uh, the the first lens that really got very fast uh, was the. Uh, uh, the Canon fifty millimeter zero point nine five. I'm talking full the film photography lens, now. Yeah. yeah, the the dream lens. Yeah, <laughs> it's dreamy because it's not sharp and so on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: that's My, the same thing with the with that Zeiss. Yeah, it's, yeah. dream lens. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, it's <laughs> that's ma- ma- marketing at its best. There isn't it really? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, um But uh, I think Zeiss we were, we're, we're probably if if this story is correct um they, they they took the view that a lens that fast on a rangefinder camera is a bit ridiculous and uh because it's, it's just going to be near impossible to actually use wide open with it with a rangefinder and it's difficult enough when you mount one on a mirrorless camera i've i borrowed uh um uh, Lawrence dunn has one i met with him a, a month or so ago and uh, i had to play with his uh his dream lens and that could just about focus it it was really tough and that was using magnification on a on a on a mirrorless camera so how you would use that thing with rangefinder wide open is anybody's guess but yeah more to the point though the, the zeiss, it was almost a, from what i hear it was a zeiss reaction uh, to lenses and such, such as that these these ultra fast lenses that they just decided to make a mock-up uh, a ridiculous-looking mock-up where the, uh, the 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 front element uh, bows out massively, um, right, right, yeah, and um, as, as if like it's collecting all all of the possible light in the in the atmosphere <laughs> and then focusing it into a single point, making it uh, this incredibly uh, fast uh, lens. But it's my belief that it's it's a, effectively a hoax lens made by mm. by Zeiss. So uh, if it's true, I love that story. Yeah,
1: yeah. And looking at it, um, I mean, it looks like it's from the. 70s-ish era, maybe a little earlier, and the front element is parabolic, which back then would be extremely expensive to make an element that size with that shape.
0: Yeah, well... I just thats I, thats thats my view on it. It'll be great if somebody could uh, um, write into us about that one and, uh, and and put us straight on that. Um, well, now now that you've um, dashed all our hopes and dreams, uh, sorry about but, that. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna move off the off that subject because it's painful now. Um, and I want to talk about another part of your business. Uh, because okay. uh, you, you've touched upon it already, that uh, you know, if somebody drops a, a a cine lens, then they can bring it to you and they can get it, get it get it fixed. And mm-hmm. your, the services you offer are particularly interesting. Um, and uh, one one thing that jumped out at me when I, when I, I looked at the kind of things that uh, Duclos lenses uh, does is uh, lens polishing. So can you tell us a bit more about that. Is that what we're talking about? Uh, cleaning marks here, or are we talking a bit more than that?
1: Uh, That's pretty much exactly what it is, is cleaning marks, coating scratches. So uh, I should say that's how it started was repairing lenses that needed to be as clean as possible. Um, And it evolved again with cinematography or digital cinematography. Uh, People wanted to take the edge off uh, and not maybe they have a modern lens, but they want to give it a little more character, some more flair Um, We'll polish off the coatings to reduce the amount of, um, uh, you know, uh, cleaning up that the coatings would have applied. So it'll encourage more flares and more character by removing those coatings.
0: And, And does it also, do you also like effectively repair lenses that have been partially damaged? Is that, is that yes. feasible?
1: Yeah, that, like I said, that's how it started, was doing that for lenses that were out of production and maybe the manufacturer didn't have any stock left over to replace. Obviously, the majority of our customers are rental houses and they're the ones that own the equipment. Uh, and their business is offering top-of-the-line equipment to their customers. So if a lens goes out on a job and gets a little tiny scratch, they would bill it to the production's insurance and they'd say, well, it's going to cost this much to replace it. And they'd say, okay, go ahead. Uh, And we would just replace the element that was scratched. But once lenses get old enough and replacement elements aren't an option, uh, we'll offer to polish it and recode it with a new coating so that it's as clean and modern and new as it can be.
0: So is there other, other limits? Well, I mean, there's bound to be limits on, on how far you can actually polish a lens
1: Oh, absolutely. After you get through the coatings, uh, if you start polishing the glass, you're going to literally change the shape of the glass and that will change your optical formula.
0: So if a, if a, so, I mean, that's, that's an interesting one in itself. Now, they the, say that the, you've got cleaning marks on the front element of a lens. Um, if the lens is not coated on the front element, does that mean you effectively can't do anything with that? Mm,
1: It depends on how deep it is. Most lenses should be coated with something, even if it's just a single layer. Um, But if it's not, or if the scratch is through the coating into the glass itself, um, we can still try. We can polish it until that scratch is reduced enough and then test it and see if we've affected the image quality. Uh, But we leave that entirely up to the customer. If, If we tell them, hey, this is through the coating, it's in the glass, you want us to try it anyway... It could ruin the lens even more. Then it's up to them.
0: Uh, actually, that now that that leads us on to something else, Ed, because we've talked about this in the past. We haven't talked about it recently, um, but it, it can be quite amazing just how much damage you can have to a, to the front of a lens and still actually produce good photographs from it. Is it would you Would you agree with that?
1: Uh, I would entirely, depending on quite a few factors. Uh, If it's a wide-angle lens or your focus is really deep and you're stopped down, a flaw, a tiny, tiny flaw, let's say a a scratch, a coating scratch, one millimeter long could actually show up. But if you're on a, uh, you know, 135 millimeters and you're wide open at T2 or F1.8 or something like that, then it probably isn't going to show up at all. And maybe it'll show up in your bokeh as kind of a weird anomaly, but it's so circumstantial uh, most of the time most of the time you won't notice a scratch at all but like i said in the rental house business they they live and die by the quality of their equipment so it's not that it could affect it it's that a person will come in to rent lenses and if the lens has a bunch of scratches they'll just assume that the rest of their equipment is not well cared for either yeah. so more often than not it's what we call a cosmetic scratch where it won't actually affect the photography but it gives a bad impression of the quality of the lens.
2: You know, it's interesting, um, I don't, and I don't know why I, I do this, but um, so I've never had a lens that cost more than $500, so I don't have super expensive lenses. And, um, and, and I've had ones that could have been repaired, and, and I've, I've, not, I've not done it, even though I've sent cameras off and had them repaired. And, and a good example is that I, I had a beautiful um, Nikkor 51.2, and it was absolutely perfect. And um, I dropped it, and it, and of course when it dropped, it, it hit up the focus ring, and it bent it, and so the focus ring wouldn't turn. But um, and I thought I, I call and I contacted Nikon, and I could have gotten the part, and it wasn't it was relatively expensive, but it wasn't too bad. But then I thought, oh yeah, but what if something else is wrong in there? And so I ended up and long end up selling it on eBay to someone as is for. I can't remember if it was 200 or $250. Just, just so they end up with the optics from the thing. But, um, you know, I don't, that, that's a, t- a tricky thing for me with lenses that aren't, you know, in, in a high price range. Right. Getting, like, what does it cost to fix a lens like that? You know, you don't know, right? It's
1: become more and more common, uh, especially with the, the, the crossover between photography and cinematography. We still get a lot of customers with. Kind of like you said, photo lenses where they don't really spend a whole lot. Maybe they found it on eBay for two hundred bucks, and they'll send it. They won't send it. They'll email us or call us and say, "Hey, I want to want to get this polished and cleaned up. Uh, what's it going to cost?" And we'll give them a quote. And it's usually at least as much as the lens cost them, if not double or triple. Uh, lens prices. I mean, you could find so many lenses on eBay for a couple bucks here and there. Um, and just because the lens has gone down in value, uh, you know, the cost of a technician sitting at a bench doesn't decrease, it only goes up. So uh, the the cost to actually perform the work hasn't changed, but the cost of lenses, especially with eBay, has dropped dramatically.
0: Yeah. I'd, I'd just think about coatings, and uh, uh, certainly in the old days, uh, coatings were very, very fragile, um, mm. and you so you could you could take a lens apart and you could wipe the coating off. Um, and I'm just wondering. I've I've heard that uh, when when lenses are recoated these days, uh, that it might be a similar kind of uh, process that was 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 used, or maybe not the same process, but ultimately they they're not. I mean I don't know the technical things. I'm going to I'm going to say hard coating versus mm-hmm. uh, this stuff that you can wipe off is what what what's actually done now or are the, the different ways of, of recoding the lens will it wipe off or is it uh, pretty pretty robust
1: um so for recoding these days we can really kind of play with it as much as we want um, most of our customers are looking for they're either trying to strip the coatings entirely like I said for a, a more unique look or they're looking to repair it and make it as new as possible. So for recoding, more often than not, we're using a very sophisticated multi-coating, very similar to uh, what the manufacturers would use in a modern brand new lens. Um, but if we want to have fun with stuff, we can tinker with it, we can do single layer coatings, we can do uh, mag fluoride coatings, which are fairly outdated and obsolete, uh, but they give interesting results. Uh, but as far as I know, none of them are less than robust. We, we see pretty good results where uh, maybe every now and again there's a mistake, and it's pretty easy to, to chip away the coatings or peel away, or, uh, but that's not common. And when we do see that, it's usually a mistake. It's not, uh, not by design.
0: Right, oh, that's 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 good to hear. Um, I want to move things on to, uh, I know that Carl actually can't be with us for, for, for too much longer, um, but there's a subject that's very particularly close to uh, Carl's heart uh, that we've had an email in, uh, a few emails actually from uh, Guido, oh, can I pronounce the surname Petruc, Petruc, Petrioli? Uh, um, and it's something we did actually talk about uh, in episode 50 about balsam separation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh now I've I've sent uh, Guido's latest email to you and um uh, just just to um recap where we where we where we were on this back in the episode 50 Guido wrote to us and uh, asked us about advice on Earth. Um, it turns out it, we, we, at the time we thought it was a Snider lens. It was actually a Rodenstock lens and enlarged uh, lens. And mm-hmm. um, and he had some, or uh, well, the lens had bolts and separation, and he was asking, you know, any ideas what we could do with it. And we, we talked about some things that you could do um, that we also <laughs> said that, uh, you know, maybe if it's a cheap lens and you don't care about it and, you, and, it, and it doesn't matter anymore, then you could do things things like uh, as i said boil it in water for a period of time and there was also uh, other suggestions such as uh, baking it in an electric oven at a certain temperature and uh, which i i think that was johnny's suggestion and i believe that johnny was talking in fahrenheit and uh, uh, Guido, uh obviously assumed that was centigrade um, so that, uh, that that went uh, that temperature rose uh, quite considerably um or was it the other way around actually uh, anyway but um um, so yeah, Bolton separation, Guido's experience and he sent us a few photographs. Um, and he tells us that he boiled it. He then put it in the oven as well. And he boiled it again. And something started to go quite well with it. And some things went horribly wrong with it. Um, and I've got I some pictures. <laughs> yeah. Um, these, these pictures are not pretty. Um, and, uh, so, Perhaps you can tell us a bit about Bolson separation, um, a quick a quick rundown of what it, what it is. We talked about it before, but we've been talking about it very much in layman's terms. So perhaps you can tell us a bit about Bolson separation and then what perhaps you might do to resolve that problem, if at all possible.
1: Uh, so that's another um, project, I guess you could say, or, or type of work that keeps us very busy. Um, especially with anamorphics, because a lot of anamorphic lenses use a doublet or even sometimes a triplet. And uh, those repairs are very, very time-consuming, very risky even, uh, so they keep our technicians pretty busy. Um, the proper way to do that uh, would be to remove the elements from the lens, not... not <laughs> not boil the entire lens you're, you're going to introduce far more problems boiling the entire lens than you would have had just having some separation
0: um, i just want to say from the, the the email doesn't actually say that you didn't actually separate it from the, the rest of the lens but it does look like you actually dropped the whole lens into the uh water in the oven so we're not we're not entirely sure what you did there guido but uh but yeah please please continue Matthew. yeah
1: so or normally what we would do is remove the doublet or the triplet, whatever the case is, um, and we would use a de agent that we boil. So you guys weren't far off, <laughs> um, but you're kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater in, uh, in, in his approach. Um, the, uh, the elements, it really depends on what it is and how it's cemented, um, how old the cement is, how much it's deteriorated. Um, sometimes the elements separate in a couple hours or maybe a day from, uh, of boiling. And I think the longest we had was a lens that took maybe a couple weeks of boiling. Um, because you can't, you can't just boil it, you know, bring it to a boil and drop it in. It's a, it's a very gradual process. If you go too hot, too fast, uh, it can easily crack the elements especially on animal on cylinder elements because uh, on a spherical lens, they begin to expand and they kind of help separate the balsam because it's two spheres for lack of a better way of describing it, uh, that sort of work with each other. But the, the cylinder elements tend to apply a lot more pressure that is far more risky. Uh, so we actually do warn all of our customers when we do, um, Uh, cement separate or re-cementing of elements uh we give them a pretty hefty warning that you know things could go wrong it's it's impossible there's no science to it it's more of a, a a waiting game uh and we never really know so we've had a couple go bad that we've had to to replace um but our technicians are are pretty darn good at Separating the the cement and then cleaning off what's left uh, and re cementing.
0: So the so the when you when you talk about re cementing then so there's is 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 well, it's, it's obviously going to be a special kind of cement that that, that that's mm-hmm. used there. Um,
1: yeah, we don't use balsam anymore. <laughs> it's <laughs> a, a much more modern uh, uh, adhesive, I guess you would call it. It's a cement, really.
0: Um, so actually, that well, that's that's a point. Well, that actually? the 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 product that you use there um putting coatings to one side um because i'm sure boiling it isn't going to help the coatings i'm guessing but uh, the 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 product that you use now instead of balsam would that actually change the optical property of the lens at all
1: Mm, possibly but it would be extremely minor because you're talking about such a small surface area or a a small thickness in just one group of elements throughout the entire lens um the cement is really, it, it, if the elements are designed and manufactured properly, the thickness of that cement is so tiny. Yeah, I mean, we use for a, a decent size, let's say a a four-inch element. It, it's of cement.
0: Right, and and would would that uh, because I've I've seen uh, things have been. Uh, glued to uh let's say glass to metal and things like that and i believe like the 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 cement that's used there it tends to be i believe it has to be uv cured and stuff like that is that the same is that a similar kind of process that you would have to do with whatever you use yep
1: yep as soon as you put the cement on you have a couple seconds to kind of adjust it and align everything especially on cylinder elements where that alignment is i mean it's 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 equally important on spherical and cylinder elements but uh so I elements even more because it'll really mess up your image quality. Uh, a spherical element can be slightly off axis and it'll still be OK. But uh, we have tools and jigs specifically to align them because you are pretty limited on the amount of time uh, before it starts to harden. And then to really set it, we use a, a UV system
0: yes right. well i th- i think you've comprehensively answered that uh, question about balls bull- and separation now we've, uh, we've we've certainly learned something there and it's uh, generally uh, speak to a professional and don't try it at home is the uh, is the official advice that we give on the classic lenses podcast um, i mean you
1: can you know, try it at home and then send it to us and it doesn't work out <laughs> well it's, we it's actually a- see that one of the most common things we see with photo lenses is is um, these ice contacts lenses that people want to try and do their own mount conversions with a litax tax or, uh, or they're trying to do their own de-clicking. And I'd say at least once a week, we get someone that says, Hey, I was trying to do this and I stripped the screws on my lens. I said, Oh, was it a contact? Yeah. It's the, the lens, the screws on a contacts are so brittle and the glue that they use on threads is so robust that I, it's, it's almost inevitable to, you're going to strip the screws unless you have the right tools or the right technique. Nice.
0: I take, I take it. You're talking about like the, um, the older, uh, German contact lenses, rather than the, uh, the contacts Yoshika lenses the, that were made in Japan there. I take it.
1: Uh, no, both. Oh, right. The, the, the ones, uh, I think that, uh, I don't know if that was Costina at the time, but, uh, yeah, but the, like the contacts, the CY, the ZEISS yeah. CY lenses. Yeah. Yeah we see those all the time for our mods.
0: Right. Okay, that's uh, that's uh, that's interesting. I mean, I've I've the lenses I've I've managed to break in, break in the past through that reason. Um have usually been the uh, uh, Soviet lenses um like when I'm trying to take a Helios uh, 44 mm. apart, and uh, uh, using the, the the head of the screw is usually not being fine. Well, the screwdriver's not being fine enough, and you push it into it, and it just just snaps the uh, the the head of the screw, which are usually brass as well. So they they're great for falling on the floor and not being able to pick up with the magnets as well.
1: Yeah, I, I would blame that mostly on Russian material quality or lack thereof. Yeah, yeah. you could have a perfectly good screwdriver. Uh, you know, nice hardened tip or cobalt or whatever. Uh, those screws are still going to fall apart just because of the way Russian lenses are built.
0: That's it. Right. Well, I'm, I'm conscious that I know that um, Carl is going to have to be leaving this soon. I'm just wondering, Carl, if you've got anything that you might wish to uh, ask Matthew before you you have to shoot.
2: I've covered all the questions that I had. Thanks very much for being a guest. We really appreciate it.
0: Of course, my pleasure. Yeah well from from my my point of view I, I think i'm pretty much out of questions anyway um uh matthew is there, are there any any things you you feel like you wish to get off your chest that you want to talk about while, whilst you're here
1: uh oh there's tons i want to get off my chest but all <laughs> my uh, manufacturer ndas would not allow that um <laughs> no i just uh, i guess overall i just want to make myself available to people i, I think a lot of Like you were saying earlier, people were saying, oh, you got Matthew Dupos on, but uh, I try to make myself as available as as possible. I do plenty of... um, uh, I do a lot of teaching for a lot of the film schools around here, so overall, just wanted the listeners to know that I'm not difficult to get a hold of if you have questions or uh, you know, just because we work on exotic, expensive cine lenses doesn't mean we don't also cater to people that are new to cinema you know, coming in from photography or just from a hobbyist perspective, don't want people to to hesitate to reach out to us.
0: So the, what would you suggest the best ways to to, to get hold of you? Because I mean, I, I got hold of you simply by going onto your website and uh, going through the, uh, through, through contact um, and uh, just saying hello. <laughs> is that, is that uh, the way you would like people to get in touch with you or is there another way you prefer people to get in touch with you?
1: Uh, there's really no bad way to get in touch email is always fine it's pretty simple it's Matthew at DuClus lenses um, but we're on I should say I'm on most of social media pretty frequently Facebook Instagram a lot stuff you can always reach out there um, if it's something more producty related there's a chat widget on our website that's pretty handy but there's really no bad way to get a hold of me
0: no, that, that, that's great. And perhaps it, this is probably a good time then to, um, to talk about you know, those, those methods. You mentioned uh, so, social media there. So perhaps you might want to tell us uh, which ones you're on and uh, what will be the easiest way to find you on places like Instagram and places like that. I'm assuming you're on Instagram.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, me personally is, uh, I guess, Instagram or Facebook. I've tried to slow down on Facebook unless it's someone I actually know, you know, the whole yeah social media thing um but instagram is pretty open it's just at nq do close and then uh more often than not i'm just on the company one so it's at it's everything is at or slash do close lenses so instagram or facebook any of those
0: well that's great well i'll put uh i'll put a few of those links into the into the show notes and uh, people can see the show notes either by going onto to the um, Facebook group Photography with Classic Lenses because, uh, whatever the latest podcast is is pinned to the top um, also you can do a search on that page although I think you probably, I'm not sure if you have to be a member of the group to do a search, um, but uh, if you do a search on that page you can uh, just type in podcast and perhaps the person that was on it and uh, chances are the, uh, that the podcast will come up that's relevant and I also, uh, every week uh, put a, a post into uh, mflenses.com dot uh, com. Yeah. Where uh, there's a there's a thread on there where you can uh, see all the all of the links uh, and uh, all of the notes that we uh, we we talk about in the podcast. So uh, that's a, a good place for that. So um, okay, well, I I think that's that's pretty much the end of uh, the the podcast. So I, I want to thank you, Matthew, for for being a, a great guest. Um, your your knowledge i think has been absolutely exceptional there's been not a single question that you've apart apart from the the, the, the deep history of the, uh, of the of the zeiss lens and frankly the more you spoke about it the more i didn't want to hear <laughs> on that subject i'm sorry, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. um so um yeah, thank you, thank you very much for uh, your, your deep knowledge there, helping us understand the world of cinematography um, much better than, than we understood it before. My pleasure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Carl, uh, do you want to, if you if you're still there, do you want to um, say goodbye and let people know how they can follow you?
2: Sure. Yeah. So you can follow me on um, Instagram, um, Carl_Havens and uh, my Flickr uh, account is just my name carl havens and then on the photography with classic lenses facebook page
0: that's it and uh <clears throat> um if you do want to uh post any pictures on instagram uh, and this is something I've, I've i've wrapped myself over the knuckles uh, last week because so i forgot to mention um, our association with best vintage lens on uh, instagram Um, so uh, do uh, put some pictures up um, if you put them up onto instagram tag them with best vintage lens and uh, you've got a chance of being featured on their feed it's also the place where ricardo bion friend of the show um, writes up uh, a synopsis of uh, of each uh, episode and i'm sure he just sits there with a with a pen and paper and takes notes because what he writes on there, I, I I've forgotten half the stuff that he actually writes uh, that <laughs> appears on the show. Does does a, an amazing job there. So uh, best vintage lens. Um, Johnny can't be with us today, uh, but you can always find him on the sales counter at uh, Central Camera in Chicago. Uh, he's on Instagram as System Photography. Um, and as he says, he's uh, usually trolling uh, the uh, Photography with Classic Lenses Facebook group. Um, I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic. I also have a website which is simonforsterphotographic.co.uk, uh, I'm on eBay. Uh, if you do a seller search for it, it's Fozzy. Um, you can find uh, plenty of k adapters on there, plus uh, I've been putting more and more lenses on there as well. So uh, that could be a, a good resource. Um, so I think that's pretty much it for today's show. Um, as we as we've said before, you can find us all on the, the Facebook group Photography with Classic Lens. And I'm glad to say that uh, Matthew has posted pictures and uh, things on uh, on that site. And hopefully uh, you'll you'll continue to to do that because every time you put something on there, it always causes a stir, um, especially when you.
1: you know, I'll, I'll certainly try. A lot of the stuff I'm doing right now is very modern lenses. But anytime I get vintage stuff and I tinker around with, I'll be sure to, to post it there because that's, uh, th- these days I'm less, less hands on with the service and more hands on with, uh, it, it It sounds spoiled, but just playing with lenses, really. That's what I get to do all day is test lenses. Yeah. That's, so that's... It's, it's fun.
0: It is. That sounds, sounds great. Um, so uh, that's it for uh, this week's show. Um, thank you to Matthew. Thank you to Carl. And uh, next week, uh, Johnny should be back with us. So uh, thank you for listening. And uh, hopefully, you'll be back with us next week. Thank yeah, yeah. you. And goodbye.